Welcome to the Faithful Music Master podcast, Musings of a Forever Musician Learner. This is episode one, Der Getreue Musikmeister. Hi, I'm Ellis Montes. Welcome to the first episode of my podcast. I hope that you enjoyed my rants and rambles, or I mean musings, I guess, about the different things that keep me busy, if not preoccupied, because there are lots of things that keep me preoccupied all day. Today I'm going to run through a few answers to some questions that I came up for myself, and I'm probably going to use this as a structure moving forward. Um, also, I am known to change things up whenever possible, so... This episode might be different than the next one, but you'll just have to stay tuned and listen to see what happens. Alright, so I wanted to go ahead and start off um, very similarly to some of my favorite podcasts uh, with asking the question of what am I drinking? So this is a little bit different though because a lot of other people usually talk about alcoholic drinks and um, I drink sometimes but not all the time. Um, but what I do always have is boiling water. So I have a water heater that's almost always full and it's almost always boiling. And so as a result, I have to have tea with it. And that's what I'm drinking today. And the tea that I'm having is this Tezo tea. Um, it is called the Wild Sweet Orange flavor. Um, I just kind of got it on a whim because I've been ordering lots of groceries from Walmart and they have like a, a minimum requirement if you want to pick up. So it's like I just order a bunch of teas because those usually kind of stack up the price enough for me to be able to pick up uh, groceries. And so this one was one of the ones that just showed up on the list. Um, it's not my favorite, but right now um, it's fairly late in the evening, so... I don't want to have something caffeinated, although I kind of doubt that caffeine does anything to me. Um, but anyway, so it's a very it's a very orange forward um, tea. Uh, it's um, it gets very sour actually. This is the first one that I actually have to like brew for half the time and then like cut it with water because um, it, it's just too strong. Whenever I have it, um, it tastes like an unripe orange, and I guess that's why it's called the wild sweet orange. So anyway, so that's that's what it is. This wild sweet orange tea. So the next thing on my list is, what am I studying? So I'm almost always studying things in general. I love studying, I love learning, I love reading, I love doing a lot of different things in this category. So I'm always studying something. So today, of course, I was learning more about Georg Philipp Telemann's periodical called Der Getreue Musikmeister. And for those of us who don't know German, just like me, I'm really bad with German. I only know those words, basically. That actually means the faithful music master. Go figure. So, I was learning a little bit more about this, um, mostly so I can give you a little bit more of an introduction to why I named my podcast this. Um, and I'm hoping to kind of talk about a few other things pertaining to that sort of theme later on in the podcast. So bear with me and we can um, basically kind of get through all of these different things about this 
collection. I don't even know what to call it. It's kind of difficult to classify what exactly this was. Um, most of the time that I read about this um, this thing, the Faithful Music Master, they call it a, um, a periodical because that's basically what it was. Um, it was a collection of music that was geared towards amateur musicians. And I will say that amateur musicians kind of in this time period, we're talking about the 18th century. Um, it sounded like people kind of had a little bit more expertise on instruments and if I can just go on a whim, I think it's because there wasn't such a thing as recorded music, so everybody just started um, having to play their own music in order to listen to it. So um, a lot of people would actually practice different instruments, and so they would perform on them uh, for each other and for themselves as well. And so I find that kind of the music in there, although it is geared towards amateurs and in the grand scheme of things, it's fairly easy to play. Um, you know, like they're in easier keys, um, they're shorter pieces, and um, they're fairly accessible on different instruments. Um, it's still basically geared towards amateurs. And so that was kind of, apparently that's kind of the main the point of it was that it was geared towards amateurs and that every um, different uh, publication would basically kind of build off of the last one or something along those lines. It doesn't really make sense to me that the first one will be like a recorder sonata and then the next week you get a song and then the next week you get a harpsichord suite and then all of a sudden you're just like, so I don't know how you necessarily build up on it or not, but I don't know. I'm not an 18th century musician. But anyway, so again, geared towards amateurs. And the really interesting thing, like I just pointed out, is that pretty much every... Um, every publication has kind of a different set of instruments basically and the idea was that the music was also fairly accessible uh, for different instruments at the time there wasn't this idea of like oh this is only for violin oh this is only for clarinet oh this is only for bassoon or something like that instead it was just like here's a treble here's a bass or maybe it's just one instrument or maybe it's multiple instruments it doesn't matter kind of you get to pick your um, instruments and then after you just get to go on from there so that's another thing is just that it's really flexible in, in the instrumentation and if you notice from the theme song I actually played what was originally published as a recorder sonata on the bassoon not only that I played on a modern bassoon which is of course a little bit different but it doesn't matter because we're in modern times. Um, you can challenge me on that, whatever. Anyways, so it's flexible in its instrumentation. And then, um, so it was published in 25 parts. It was basically published every fortnight or every other week, basically. Um, and each one had like these this little collection of different uh, pieces for different instruments. So um, that's the general idea of what Der Ketreue Musikmeister or the Faithful Music Master was. And I do not intend to say that I am going to be a teacher or anything like that. Um, I just like the title a lot because I think it works really well in English. This idea of faithful and music master, the fact that faithful can mean somebody who is a person of faith, um, you know, a believer of whatever religion or spirituality or tradition it can also mean somebody who's loyal somebody who wants to kind of you know kind of serve others or you know be able to bring 
whatever goodness there is towards other people. So that's something that I kind of um, strive for as well, just to be able to really um, bring other things into the community, especially by the means of music, which is um, my career. And it's something that I've kind of grown up with and it runs in my family and it's just really important for me in general. So I hope that I, as a music um, learner in this case, can actually bring this to other people at least. So, um, and I do not want to say that I presume myself to be a music master. Um, I do have a master's in music, um, but I do not presume myself to be a master of music. Instead, I like to think of myself, like I said, as a forever musician learner. Um, but again, the title of the periodical says Music Master, so I'm going to kind of play along with that, and maybe there's kind of some other commentaries I can come up with about that later on. So all that being said, let's kind of take this in a completely different direction. So I am often studying about music. I have books that are, you know, sort of geared towards university-level research and stuff like that. Um, but the other thing I like to do a lot of studying of is languages. That's one of my favorite things, and um, hopefully you can kind of get that already with just a little bit of excitement about um, just being able to pronounce the German. Um, I was a, I was in boys' choir when I was growing up, so. Uh, we sing in a bunch of different languages, and I really loved um, just being able to sing in different languages and learning more about how the different languages works uh, worked, especially with regard to their spelling and their pronunciation, and it, it, it was just really interesting. And I still use those techniques today um, to kind of show these little tidbits to you, so it doesn't entirely go to waste. Uh, so... Like I said, I like studying languages. Um, the one language that I've been studying for, and there goes the refrigerator, I'm recording in the dining room and the refrigerator kind of goes off and on and stuff like that, so disregard that. Anyways, I like studying languages, and the language that I've studied for the longest is Mandarin Chinese. I've been studying it for probably about eight years now, and I still am practicing and learning. I always like to learn new vocabulary. I'll meet new people to practice with and stuff like that. Maybe I'll be able to explain more about my learning techniques and stuff like that. But for today, um, in terms of the question of what am I studying, I also wanted to say that I'm actually delving into classical Chinese. Yay! Um, so classical Chinese is basically the literary language uh, for um, China, or what becomes known as China over the ages. Um, and it's basically a highly stylized form of language that kind of is very, it's, so it's very concise. Um, it has very few words in it, and so as a result, it takes a lot of extra study to kind of figure out kind of how the different words work together, and there's a bunch of really weird, like, leftover particles. So, like in Mandarin, you can find some of these extra words like hu and zhi and zhe and stuff like that. You'll find all those sounds in Mandarin, and they won't really mean anything because they just kind of linger on from older times. But in classical Chinese, they actually mean something because there's so few words to begin with. Um, on top of that, though, um, I also just really enjoy 
the poetry. So that's the other reason why I wanted to kind of get into it a little bit more so that way I can understand the poetry more. Um, a lot of times I can kind of approach a um, traditional Chinese poem and I can read many of the characters, um, but I won't always be able to understand it. So I want to kind of study a little bit more about that. And then also some of the other texts such as Confucius, for example. I love his um, teachings and his writings. Um, they are very, very, very interesting uh, from a philosophical perspective, and um, I like to think of them almost from a theological perspective as well. Uh, they kind of inform you how to kind of live your life and how to kind of conceive of, you know, sort of the divine in um, the context of the mundane as well, or of the human. So, Funny story though, so last night when I got my classical Chinese book out so I can start learning, I hadn't touched it in a very long time, and I am very lazy when it comes to dusting in general around the house. Um, so my bookshelves get lots of dust, um, especially because I have too many books. So there's a lot of times when I'll have a book that I'm reading and then afterwards the other ones collect more dust. And so over time, that kind of adds up and adds up. And so when I pull out a book that I haven't really touched in a very long time, all of a sudden, there's all of that time's worth of dust that comes out. And my body is very sensitive to dust. Um, I keep on reminding myself of that, and yet I always, you know, just leave dusting um, to not be done, basically. And so um, then I end up with these situations where... I had a lot of allergies last night. It was very difficult to fall asleep. And I was thinking the worst that I was probably getting infected with COVID. And so I just freaked myself out and I couldn't really sleep. Um, so that was the loveliness of me getting my classical Chinese book out. It's almost as if, like, you know, when people talk about learning Latin and they summon demons and all of a sudden they are being kind of surrounded by these sort of, like, otherworldly beings. Perhaps it's a similar experience by grabbing a classical Chinese text. But anyway, so I grabbed it. Um, I read through a little bit of it. I was learning a little bit more about the vocabulary and the grammar. So, anyways... I'm doing a lot better today, by the way, so I know that it's not COVID, um, so, you know, I'm doing better, and that's also why I drink tea, so that way in the morning and at night, um, my breathing can be a little bit easier, because warm water just helps the lungs to open up, and I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I'm just describing how I feel whenever I drink tea. So anyway, so that's, that's my story about grabbing the classical Chinese textbook. So I like Chinese poetry, um, especially um, because of the way that the meter sounds. And one of the difficult things about the Chinese poetry is that, like I said, since it's so concise, the sound of it is very different in Chinese. And I mean Chinese as in like the entire family of languages, including classical pronunciation, Mandarin, Cantonese, whatever you want to say. Um, basically, in Chinese, the poetry sounds so much different than, um, at the very least, any poetry that we have in the West. Um, and I'm mostly familiar with just English um I'm very well versed in English poetry because I actually did a degree in that. Um, but also, um, I'm pretty familiar with like Latin poetry and Greek poetry and um, a bit of Spanish poetry as well. So from, you know, kind of judging from those and also French poetry, judging from those Western um, poetic traditions, we do not have something that 
has the same sort of feel as classical Chinese poetry. And so that's one of the biggest reasons why I love to learn more about the poetry. And I wanted to go ahead and just read um, just one poem that... I'll read it in Chinese, in Mandarin, with Mandarin pronunciation, because that's the one that I know best. And, you know, you can kind of just listen to it, just kind of to hear how it sounds. Um, one of the things that I loved about my poetry teachers is that one of the most important things they always emphasized was the actual sound. We always had people read our poetry out loud to each other when we were... Um, when we were actually writing poetry and workshopping it together. And we always read the poetry that we were studying out loud as well, because it's, it's just really important to kind of engage with that sound aspect of our poetry. So this poem is called Qingming, which basically means the clear and bright festival. It's the tomb sweeping day um, for um, traditional Chinese culture. I know that some people still celebrate it or observe it. It's kind of a strange um, confluence of emotions there, I guess, associated with it. Um, so it's solemn in the sense that you're kind of bringing respects to um, your ancestors and going to their graves and cleaning them up and tending to them. But it's also oftentimes viewed as the day to go to the park, to gather with family and friends, and to enjoy nature, especially because it happens um, right around the beginning of spring well maybe not the beginning more more like in the middle of spring it kind of goes back and forth between like um between like march and april if i'm not mistaken i'm just kind of pulling this out of my head um because i always think about it almost every year and then i read about the history and stuff like that over and over again but anyway so this one is called Qingming, and it's by a poet named Du Mu. um don't know too much about him perhaps i should have prepared that beforehand um but anyways here is the poem. Qingming shi jie yu fen fen Lu shang xing ren yu duan hun Jie wen jiu jia he zhu you Mu tong yao zhi xing hua cun So there it is. Four lines. Each line has seven characters. And this is a translation in this book that I have. I do not like this translation, but again, I didn't really take the time to translate it myself. On the occasion of clear and bright festival, it incessantly rained. Pedestrians on the road were profoundly pained. When asked where the tavern was one could enjoy, the Apricot Blossom Village was pointed by the shepherd boy. It's a little bit forced there to make those rhymes work. But anyways, I just really like that in Chinese poetry. And I was actually really fortunate when I traveled to China once that there was a time when we were... I was watching kind of a performance with an opera singer, a Chinese opera singer, and she was talking about the importance of the literature to Chinese culture, and that um, she was mostly speaking because everybody there was Chinese except for me, and basically she was saying that we all... Um, I'm trying to quote her, basically. I do not mean this for myself because I'm not Chinese. Um, she basically said that we all need to take our responsibility as Chinese people, as people who have this Chinese culture within us, to actually, um, you know, kind of bring this culture forward with us as we, um, you know, live our lives and stuff like that. And so part of it, she did um, a period where they were able to recite Chinese poetry. And I thought it was really impressive to hear people reciting different kinds of poetry because... 
Um, I don't memorize as much poetry as I feel like I should. Um, you know, there are times in my classes when our teachers would just recite so many different poems without even looking at a page or anything like that. And they would just come up with random ones. I guess that's similar to like people who memorize Bible verses. That's kind of what I do. Anyways, so there was that and it was just really moving to hear people kind of, again, read the poetry and it had those cadences. And then on top of that, they had a musician who was actually improvising as people were reading the poetry. And so the music was always responding to the poetry and some people got really dramatic into the poems as well and they would add even more like drama into the poetry as well. Um, some of the poems was, were a lot longer than this one. Um, this poem and the ones that I'm most familiar with are mostly taught to younger children so um, I'm not that familiar with like the really long poems um, which there are quite a few of as well in the classical Chinese tradition. So anyways in the past, actually, I wanted um, when I was really getting into um, learning more about Chinese literature, especially, I actually wanted to try my hand at writing um, something in English that could kind of have the same sort of sense as these poems, because I, I just really appreciated them a lot. And so what I did was I kind of set a little pattern for myself to follow where basically I said I will pick one of these meters which usually they have like a four character line a five character six or seven those are usually the ones that there are and I know I'm just kind of naming numbers now but trust me most of them are usually five or seven characters and then there are some other poems that are also in four or six characters as well and there's kind of like different um uh, customs and rules about where you can kind of break the lines up and stuff like that um in general, they kind of have either four through seven uh, characters in a line. And so what I was thinking was that maybe I could do that similar in English, where I use syllables, which I know is really common when people like to do um, a haiku. Um, I, I probably need to do an entire episode just on, on my opinions on um, kind of the way that um, Eastern... Um, Eastern poetic styles have been kind of adopted or appropriated um, in the West. But anyway, so when people kind of write haikus, they like to think about like, you know, five, five syllables and seven syllables and five syllables. Um, except I wanted to add one more, um, one more thing to it, because in English, when we do these things with, with syllables, most of our words, well, not most of them, but we have a lot of words, I don't know, I don't have this knowledge, um, this um, figure off the top of my head, but I do think that actually most words are more than one syllable long in English, and so as a result, we kind of have to add like these extra stress patterns and stuff like that in our poetry, and so we don't always. It doesn't have quite the same sort of um, weightiness and almost um, a sense of almost like a choppiness in as, as the Chinese poetry does. So what I added as a rule. So I said I'm going to use, you know, one of these meters of like five or seven syllables, and I'm only going to use words that are only one syllable long, um, which I know might be challenged in this poem I'm about to read. But basically, yeah, that that's what I wanted to do. And so I wrote a, like a few poems. This was in 2013. I wrote a few poems um, with these sorts of rules, and maybe I'll try again um, in the future. So here's a poem that I wrote in 2013 with to kind of emulate the sound of the sort of classical Chinese poetry. It's called My People. 
orange line, home soon, school bag clad. One small brown girl stands near, glad. Her mom looks out, stale, drained, beat. Girl looks up and calls me dad. So that's the poem that I wrote, seven syllables per line. And I also tried to keep up the, the rhyming pattern as well. Um, just a short explanation. Basically, this was um, just telling about an experience that I had when I was riding in the Orange Line train in Chicago, where um, it was fairly crowded. And I saw this mother and daughter. Um, the daughter was uh, really young, and um, she was just kind of standing right next to me at my, at my feet, basically. And then she just kind of looked up to me and she said, like, Papa. Um, and I was just like, I'm not your dad. But I also thought it was really sweet because perhaps she doesn't know who her dad is or perhaps she just, you know, thinks that maybe older Hispanic men are her, um, are relatives to her as well. Um, they, they both look Hispanic to me. So that was kind of my um, observation and kind of what I wanted to emulate in this poem. The next question is, what am I reading? And so I'm trying to get myself to read a little bit more in general, uh, mostly because I know that it helps me to relax more, and I really enjoy reading in general. And mo most of all, I actually really like reading uh, fiction. I find myself reading a little bit too much nonfiction. I'm always trying to like learn more things or trying to like uh, figure out some different things, but I need to read more fiction in general because I find it really enjoyable, and I just really like the idea of just being able to kind of escape where you are into the broader world that has been come up with by authors or poets or, um, you know, oral traditions or just kind of whatever we have that's out there. And for me, especially in the form of a book. So the uh, first thing that I wanted to show that I'm reading is the Odyssey. And I have a penchant for reading um, really old books or poems or whatever kind of literature you want to call it. So I'm reading The Odyssey, and the main reason why is because I am kind of just trying to uh, find a little bit more inspiration about um, both writing in an epic style of, of poetry and also to talk a little bit more about journeys and travels. And that's actually one of my projects that I'm working on right now um, for the National Novel Writing Month. Um, it's been about five years, I found out, since I last did it. Um, and I always enjoy doing it, um, even if I don't necessarily finish. So for those of you who don't know, National no Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, um, is basically during the month of November to write a 50,000-word um, document. And so most of the time that's in the form of a novel, hence the no novel in the NaNoWriMo um, abbreviation there. And that's what I've done most of the time. I would usually write a fantasy um, that's kind of set up in this universe that I've kind of created. And I need to finish up those books so that way I can actually have a, um, a corpus of, of literature that I've actually written and published, which is quite the interesting and daunting process that I have yet to investigate. Um, there's that idea, and then also I would actually have 
um, some continuity in this universe and kind of be able to make it a little bit more sense for myself as well because I've just kind of thrown out a ton of different ideas into that direction and a lot of times I forget kind of what's going on so I need to organize myself a lot more in terms of my writing but anyway so I usually do that but this year what I decided to do was a project that I've been keeping on my mind for a long time and I'm still gonna kind of be a little bit reticent about what exactly it is but it's an epic that talks about um, taking a journey and not only is it a journey but it's actually a journey in a car so um, I wanted to kind of emphasize a little bit more of um, you know the world around me which I'm living in Houston um, I live in the suburbs in Sugarland and so I have to drive everywhere the closest um, public um, bus stop is uh, at least two miles away from here and up until like last year we didn't even have sidewalks to get anywhere so um, it really hasn't been an option to to really walk anywhere or to really engage in anything um, in the city in that way and then on top of that um, it would be an awful long commute if I were to go on public transit what little public transit we have access to here so um as a result, I have to drive, and that's what most people do here in, in Houston, especially in the greater Houston area. Most people drive, and a lot of people kind of have subscribed to this um, this sort of idea that was really popular, I believe, in the 70s and 80s, which was to kind of live a little bit further away from the city, not quite that far away from the city, but just not inside the city limits. Um, and so, basically... Uh, people will oftentimes commute into the city for work and then they'll commute out of the city after work. So that's all to say that <laughs> there are lots of cars and cars are really important to um, the greater Houston area. And we are the fourth largest city in the United States. And so if you can imagine, we have tons and tons of cars all over the place. So anyways, I'm reading The Odyssey partially for that sort of um, inspiration to kind of see a little bit more about, you know, how can you write a very long um, epic um, talking about somebody's travels and kind of what kind of experiences. And I'm trying to kind of analyze that a little bit more, um, mostly as I read. Um, I have this thing, I, I, I like to say that I'm almost plagued with it, actually, where basically um, whenever I'm reading or watching a movie or watching a TV show or listening to music, my mind is always kind of doing this sort of commentary where I'm trying to understand it uh, for whatever it is. I'm always trying to kind of connect it to my life however I can so that I can understand it better and appreciate it more. Um, sometimes that voice gets so loud that it's very difficult to um, engage with um, certain media, but um, I also find it very enjoyable as well. But that's often why I need like sort of space when it comes to me reading because I need to kind of have that sort of opportunity to kind of really open myself up to the book or whatever it is or um, the same thing when it comes to like uh, watching movies and stuff like that that's also why a lot of times I'll default to um, rereading um, books or re-watching shows or stuff like that that I'm already familiar with so that way I don't necessarily have to like um, you know keep on analyzing something that's brand new um, it's very difficult for me to turn it off um, it's also the reason why it's very difficult for me to do um, studying or stuff like that when there's music going on at the same time. But I'm about to explain sort of the contrast to that in a moment. But let me kind of stick to the script that I have here as best as I can or whatever this is. Um, so anyway, so I'm reading The Odyssey. The other book that I'm reading kind of, sort of, right now is Christoph Wolf's um, 
biography of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, the book is called Johann Sebastian Bach, the Learned Musician. Um, and um, I actually haven't read the entire thing yet. Um, I do find it fascinating, though. Just I've, I've read a few chapters in it um, before, um, but it's been quite a few years since I've last read uh, through those chapters. But now I'm just reading through the beginning, um, mostly because I'm looking for a quote that he mentions towards the beginning uh, when he describes um, the Bach family as kind of being this family of musicians and establishing this whole trade of being musicians in general. So um, it was really inspiring for me recently, though. So um, my grandfather is um, clearing out a lot of things in his house and so he's found a lot of older pictures and stuff like that and one of the ones that he found recently was one of his uh, father who was also in a brass band so um, kind of through his family and I believe we can kind of see it in other members of our family as well um, we basically have four generations of musicians in our family and so I find that really inspiring just the idea that you know I'm kind of um, engaging again with that sort of a tradition that my ancestors have have started and I wouldn't be surprised if we find that even more ancestors especially uh, from Peru for example were um, musicians in their own right or um, doing different sorts of things along the musical um, path so Anyways, there was this uh, quote that uh, Christoph Wolf used in um, his book. Basically, it, I want to find out where that quote comes from, basically, because I believe he quotes it from another book, so it makes it even more difficult. Um, but it's something along the lines of, basically, it takes three generations to kind of establish a um, a trade. And so the idea that there was that, basically... Um, in Bach's family, he, I believe, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach was the third generation in his family to take on music. And then afterwards, uh, his children also continued that as well. So that's at least four generations of uh, musicians who were prominent in their own time. Um, of course, Johann Sebastian Bach is probably the most famous out of his family and one of the most famous Western classical musician um, composers. Well, he was a performing musician as well at the time. We don't have recordings of him, unfortunately. But so he was, you know, one of the most um, celebrated and remembered ones. But at the same time, his children were also very well respected and very well received at the time. They were the ones that actually kind of brought the gospel of Johann Sebastian Bach to the rest of Germany and basically to the rest of Europe at the time. I am just in reading the book to find this one quote um, just because I wanted to um, talk about it with um, my family because I just think it's really interesting to talk about you know multiple generations um establishing a trade um and just kind of how i see that in our family as well um and i really love it it's it's really neat that we can kind of have this sort of um tradition in our family or tradition of music and a tradition of religion as well we're all um most of us are well i believe all of us yeah we we all basically are very involved in um in in church in general so um there's that as well all right, so moving on. So I guess I'm kind of going down the list of things that I use to entertain myself. So reading was one of them. The next question is, what am I listening to? So I like to listen to a lot of music in general. Um, I'm a musician. I appreciate music. And I'm a millennial, so I always like to have things filling in the silence. 
I have to have my background music for when I'm washing the dishes or when I'm going on a walk or when I'm even going from my room to my car. I need to have some noise going on in the background. Um, it's just kind of the thing that I do. And I've heard kind of through memes that this is a really common thing for millennials to do in general. So anyways, I'm always listening to music. And on top of that, um, right now, especially what I've been doing is I've been listening to um, longer pieces of music, uh, mostly because I am using that as kind of background music for when I am writing um, this um, epic, um, this epic poem project. I shouldn't call it an epic project because it's not that grand. Um, but anyway, so I'm working on this NaNoWriMo thing. And so kind of whenever I'm doing the writing, I find it really helpful if I can just have some music in the background. And so what I've been doing is kind of listening to mostly symphonies um, because those pieces are usually about 45 minutes to an hour to an hour and a half long. So um, that fits just about the right amount of time for me um, to kind of sit down and put, you know, 1600 to 2000 words onto the page. And that's basically the daily goal. Um, so yeah, I've been listening to a lot of those. Most recently, though, I have listened to Shostakovich's 15th Symphony. Um, which turns out to be one of my favorites. And if you know me, you know that I like to say this is one of my favorites about a lot of things. I have a lot of favorites. Um, and when you ask me, like, what is my favorite thing? I almost always try to, like, qualify it by putting it into a different category because I have too many favorites that I don't like to, like, value one above the other in general. So um, this symphony is one of my favorites. Um, I guess it's my favorite. Shostakovich symphony, um, or whatever. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite of his symphonies, though. Um, I guess that'll be another thing for me to rank them one day. I don't know. Um, maybe that can be something people want to listen to. Anyway, so I, I really like this piece a lot. Um, and when I was actually writing, I um, was kind of going back and forth between like actually um, listening to the performance and then also writing just because there's a lot going on. So just a little information about this piece, um, at least from the listening experience, there's a lot of like background and stuff like that. And I don't really know it off the top of my head. Um, I didn't want to have to sit down and write for too long um, to create this script. So I'm just going to give you a few highlights that I glean from it whenever I'm listening to it. Um, although I do have a few analytical things that I've learned, um, but that's because they just keep on coming back and coming back and coming back. So this piece, um, the first movement apparently was originally a separate a piece or was planned to be a separate piece. And it was going to be called the Toy Store. Um, and the idea basically was Shostakovich, Dmitry Shostakovich, who's a um, Soviet-era composer from the 20th century. Um, he was basically incorporating a musical spelling of his son's name into the music. And on top of that, the, the, that's, that movement itself has lots of percussion instruments, which we don't get to hear all that often in a lot of classical music. Um, throughout the 20th century, especially, people started adding more and more and more um, percussion. So now they're kind of a mainstay, especially when we look at music, uh, you know, after maybe 1960s. Um, I'm just giving a ballpark range. Um, Basically, from like the years 1960 and forward, we have lots more percussion in our music, um, you know, in the, you know, the classical music that you hear, like in concert halls and stuff like that, or, or in performances at, at conservatories or um, kind of whatever anybody wants to call classical music. Usually it has a bit more um, percussion in it nowadays than it did before. Um, 
And anyways, that's uh, that's going to get me really off topic. So anyway, so Shostakovich wrote this first movement, thinking, calling it the toy store at first. And he's thinking about his child. You know, he adds this. Um, so his child's name is Sasha. Um, I guess it's Alexander... Um, I forgot what the name was exactly, um, the full name. Um, but anyways, the short name is Sasha. And so what, what, um, what Shostakovich did was he actually used the German style of adding, um, different letters because for some reason the German, um, the German understanding or the way that they teach or conceive of, of the note names, so for example, we have like the, you know, the sound of music, like the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Um, which is used by a lot of um, Romance language speaking countries. So you'll find that in France, you'll find that all over Latin America, you'll find that in Spain, in Italy, they kind of use those as their note names. And then in Germany, they use something similar to what the United States does as well, which is using the letters. So you have like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, but then they also use the letter H, um, because originally B meant B flat, and then H was B natural. So anyway, so they have those, and then they also have a few other interesting ones. So if you have a flat, they add the letter S afterwards. So um, basically ES, which sounds like the letter S, is actually E flat, because it's the letter E with the S after it. I'm not entirely sure why, if somebody wants to kind of chime in, um, I know this is pre-recorded, but... Um, if anybody ever wants to comment or or somehow share a little bit more of this explanation, please do. So basically, um, the Germans have this system, and that's what um, Shostakovich used for um, spelling his son's name into it. So he uses E flat, which is da, and then he uses A flat, which is as. So um, da, and then he uses C. Da, then H, da, and then A, da. So he uses those uh, one, two, three, four, five notes to kind of establish a theme in that movement, which is supposed to talk about the toy store. So it's da, 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 da. And it's really cute because basically the flute plays it um, kind of in um, combination with the glockenspiel and with um, I think a little bit of other percussion and then the pizzicato and the strings so there's just a lot of little textures and makes it sound like it's you know like kind of as if you're like shopping around for different toys in a toy box or something like that um, and you know kind of has all, all these little sounds in it so there's that melody and then the other fun thing is that there's also that William Tell or the Lone Ranger I forgot what the reference is called I do not I have not really watched all that many Western movies, so I don't really know where it comes from. Um, the the horse theme, the that shows up also in that movement, um, just as a little quotation. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, but it's it's kind of funny whenever it shows up in that movement, anyways. So basically, that's the first movement. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention about this piece, uh, because again, I could probably do an entire episode just talking about um, this piece. I could even just talk about the first movement. I've always said that I wish I knew how to do animation or 
I wish I was um, much more efficient at things like Lego animation or something like that. So I can actually do like a, um, a little um, premise and it can basically turn like a little video to that movement because I have a lot of ideas that come to mind every time I listen to it as well. Um, anyways, the last movement I really like, um, mostly because of the very ending. Um, basically, after, you know, the traditional orchestra with like the strings the woodwinds and the brass and the timpani they all play like their music and stuff like that and towards the end they kind of slowly get softer and softer and softer and the last thing that's left is just all the little percussion that sounds like toys basically they have a ratchet they have these little drums like there's a snare drum there's like a drum without the snares there's wood blocks and glockenspiel and xylophone just tons of percussion instruments and they're just playing softer and softer and softer as well and so everything kind of fades out um, really softly and basically it just dies at the end and what I mean by that though is more like it just relaxes so much into the actual sound the action so that it plays an A major chord the strings are just sustaining this chord and then at the very end the glockenspiel just plays um, like a C sharp and an E um, which fills out the major chord and so it's kind of this little stinger at the very end of the um of the movement and i just think it's an amazing ending to the symphony which gets really loud um pretty often but basically it just it, it ends you know it just dies out into the silence and i just really love that about this piece um i hope i put a link to like a youtube video that has a performance of this piece so that we can kind of listen to what i'm talking about um but yeah, I definitely recommend listening to Shostakovich's 15th Symphony. Um, maybe one day I'll figure out how to um, use the right um, permissions and stuff like that with um, the podcast so that way I don't really infringe on copyright issues, but maybe I can actually feature some musical examples so you can kind of hear alongside what I'm doing. My piano playing is horrendous, so um, I do not want to try demonstrating at the piano. I'm not... Um, like the people at Performance Today or whatever those other um, programs are that people use. So with my intense fascination with language, um, I also really enjoy learning about etymology and different words and stuff like that. So today I wanted to also add a little word of the day section. So the word that I wanted to um, use for today is verity. And the definition is a true principle or belief, especially one of fundamental importance. And that is according to the dictionary that Google provides. So I wanted to use um, two different sentences with this word. The first one is, An unfortunate verity onto which wordsmiths often cling is that excesses of Latinate words add pomp to their writing. It doesn't make me want to read it. So... Um, that's a really convoluted way of using the word. Um, here's another, another sentence. Hopefully this one's a little bit easier. Um, I was kind of jokingly using that first one. Okay, the second one. The verity of compassion is being challenged as people decide whether to wear masks in public or wash their hands. I guess that sentence is a little bit unclear, but I'll just leave it as it is. Um, Yeah. Please wear masks in public, um, wash your hands. Um, we are nowhere near um, kind of solving this whole pandemic here in the United States. So please do your part. Uh, we all need to um, contribute to that. 
Anyways, so back to this word verity. So the other thing that I thought was interesting and one of the things that I love to kind of talk about is that in Spanish, uh, we have lots of words that can be very common, but when we bring them into English or we use like the, the similar word in English, they all of a sudden become very fancy words. So in Spanish, um, the same word that means verity, the one that derives from the same root as verity, it's hard to describe this, is the word verdad in Spanish. Um, so verdad then comes in, um, you know, it comes from, uh, I believe, from ver verus or veritas in Latin, and then afterwards in English through French we get it, and it's called verity. I don't know how many times I've heard the word verity. It's very little that I've ever heard this word, so that's the reason why I wanted to um, just bring it up, basically. So in Spanish, really common word, verdad, um, and all those uh, words basically talking about truth in Spanish. So um, verdad, um, like uh, veras, like de veras, basically, like, you know, in truth. Um, and then there's also, um, I guess that's the main one. Anyways, so those are really common in Spanish. They're even just common in stock phrases. In English, the word verity, on the other hand, is not quite as common. So um, I always think that's interesting. And now for an unrelated uh, etymology of the day, but it's related because it talks about the title of this um, podcast, so here we go. So, please bear with me, we're going to start with one end and we'll get to English eventually. So, I'm going to start with German. So, Getreue, and I'm not too sure if that's the right pronunciation, Getreue has two components. Um, so my German is really horrible, but I do know that the beginning letters, when you have G and E, like at the beginning of a word, that can sometimes be just an added part to a root word in German. So what I find is the uh, root word is actually Troy, which is spelled T-R-E-U, Troy. And actually my computer wants to autocorrect it to true. Um, it was difficult to get it not to do that. So anyways, this word derives from the Proto-Germanic word Triwis. I have no idea how to pronounce it. I'm just going to say it like that because I think it sounds funny. Triwis. Which then, that's the same root word that gives us the English word true. So anyway, so in the Proto-Germanic word, we have triwis. And that actually comes, you know, if we trace it back even further, there's this one um, hypothetical language that um, linguists have come up with, which is called uh, Proto-Indo-European. And it's just a way to kind of trace the origins of a lot of vocabulary for um, many European languages. And also um, many northern um, Indian languages as well, including um, and even Persian, uh, for example. It... it, it uh, spans a pretty large range of area. Anyway, so in this Proto-Indo-European language, um, they propose that there's this word that's pronounced Dreuch. I have no idea how to pronounce the H's. Those are ridiculous, but I am not a linguist, so I'm just going to pronounce it the way that I think it is. So it's Dreuch, which becomes Triwis, which then becomes true in English, or Troy in German. Um, but anyway, so in... Uh, that Indo-European root, that dreuch, um, apparently originally means something like steady and firm. And so that sort of idea is played with, especially more in German, for example, looking at the, the dictionary definition of Troy and Getreue, 
um, again, that's like in Der Getreuer Musikmeister. Um, Getreuer, they have that same meaning of being loyal and faithful, in addition to being true, although I don't know which one is more common or not. Anyway, so loyal and faithful. And I want to say that that's basically the older use of the word true as well. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I do remember, or at least I think I remember that in older um, English, like maybe from the 1600s or 1800s, I'm not 100% sure, um, basically the word true can also mean something more like loyal and faithful in addition to meaning true, like we say as well. So there's that. And in addition to that, in the Romance tradition, what becomes true is verdad, and so that's where we get the word verity as well. So that's kind of how all of these words are connected together. I don't know if I did this correctly, but if you followed me, good. If you didn't, then just tell me and I can change up this, this segment another time. Um, anyways, hopefully you can bear with me on that. All right, so this next section is something that I hope will I'll be able to incorporate into a sort of um, separate series in general. Um, but this is what I'll consider my special topic of the day. Um, I'm doing a lot of talking, but it's a podcast after all, and that's what people are here for. Anyways, so the special topic of the day I wanted to talk about is about the church calendar. Um, not, not the... Uh, let me not qualify that. I want to talk about the fact that tomorrow or whenever this podcast goes up, hopefully it's before Christ the King Sunday, but if it isn't, then anyways, Christ the King Sunday is coming up um, on November 22nd, um, I believe. I Well, I am recording on November 21st. Who knows if this will get out in time. Anyways, so November 22nd is Christ the King Sunday, and it is one of my least favorite Sundays in the... Um, church calendar. Um, I know it kind of sounds heretical. I know that most of my, not most, but a lot of my ideas about Christianity, about faith and stuff like that, make me sound heretical or atheistic or anti-theistic, whatever you want to say. I don't care. I'm going to say my opinions. Anyways, and also this does not reflect on any of my employers, except I only have like one employer um, for like one hour a week. So yay COVID pandemic um, joblessness. Um, so anyways, in the future, if I am or well, when I am employed, this does not reflect my um, this not, does not reflect the opinions of whoever is employing me. This is just me. This is Ellis Montes speaking. Um, so anyways, so I do not like Christ the King Sunday. It's one of the most annoying parts of the church calendar, in my opinion. And I'll just give you a few or just a short rundown on it. But first, let's start with a quote. So back in December 11th, 1925, you know, World War One had been wrapped up and, you know, whatever. Um, Europe was all over the place. Um... And the United States was sort of involved-ish, kind of, so it was also sort of all over the place as well. And anyway, so the Pope, um, Pope Pius XI, 
decided to um, circulate. He actually circulated two letters. I don't know too much about either one of them, um, but apparently the first one was kind of a more condensed or more concise version, and then after the second letter was this longer, um, more sermon about the times that they were in. And so I just wanted to quote this one sentence really quickly. So it says, In regno Christi, in quimus quipe nobis vidabimur, ad pacem redinte grandam stabiliendam que non posse efficatius, quam domini nostri imperio instaurando contendere. And I feel special for saying that um, my Latin isn't too good. This is the English translation that is provided by the Vatican itself. In the kingdom of Christ, that is, it seemed to us that peace could not be more effectually restored nor fixed upon a firmer basis than through the restoration of the empire of our Lord. All right, so basically, this entire letter, um, this whole sermon, basically talks about the idea of founding the church on Jesus Christ and basically relying on Jesus Christ as the one person that we focus on in whatever we're doing. And at the time, the, or at least kind of the interpretations I've been reading are just that um, the Pope was responding to the fact that you had these dictatorships that were coming up, you know, there was fascism, there was communism, there were all these revolutions going on, and of course there were the World War, and then eventually the Second World War as well. So we have all of these major movements that have these really um, bold, or um, in my opinion, people that are um, followed a little bit too closely at the time. Demagogue is another word. Um, these dictators, these leaders, these war leaders and stuff like that were kind of being very prominent at the time. And so the Pope kind of took it upon himself to basically say, as Christians, he is preaching to what he sees as basically all of Christendom or whatever you want to call it, basically saying that we need to focus on Jesus Christ. And on top of that, we need to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the king. So that's basically the story that eventually leads to um, Christ the King Sunday being added to the church calendar. Um, apparently, at first, it was supposed to be just at the end of October. This particular time, it was going to be at the end of December. Eventually, the people who came up with the revised common lectionary calendar added it to the last Sunday before Advent any given year. And so... That's where we are, and we are still observing that. And when I say we, um, I speak mostly, well, I speak only as an Episcopalian. Um, I'm a lifelong Episcopalian. That's the Christianity that I'm most familiar with, because that's what I've grown up with. And so a lot of times I'll be speaking about these issues that maybe only pertain to the Episcopal Church. Um, if they do, I'm sorry, hopefully um, I can take a broader view on these different things. But basically... This is part of the Revised Common Lectionary, which is the kind of the cycle of different readings that the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the, um, I think, of Presbyterian churches use it as well, in addition to uh, Roman Catholic churches. They kind of all use the same set of, of readings, um, which is kind of developed in a three-year-long cycle, and... Um, in my opinion, they kind of do a fairly good job at following a sort of narrative structure to them. 
there's kind of this development that happens throughout whenever you're reading through these. So when we're talking specifically about this time period, usually it goes from late spring all the way through the beginning of December. So in that whole period from uh, this year, I believe it's it was from May all the way through um, through um, the, the end of November. Um, this period is called the period after Pentecost, also known as the green season because the liturgical color is green. And basically what happens is we just start reading um, one of the Gospels in order. And so we encounter the different teachings of Jesus. And then after this, usually there'll be readings that are kind of associated with those teachings as well. But the core idea is basically whatever Jesus is preaching about in those readings that we're reading. Usually towards the end of that period, regardless of, of how many Sundays there are, um, it goes into more prophetic ideas that are um, predicting the coming of Christ. And then when we get into Advent, we automatically kind of take a step all the way back to pretend that we haven't really seen Jesus arrive just yet. We're kind of in preparation for Jesus' coming. And so, as a result, I feel like that transitions fairly smoothly from the end of the green season into Advent. However, with the addition of the Christ the King Sunday, as it um, kind of taking the, the last Sunday, it often, I feel like it could have been done better, basically. Uh, the readings that we have are strange. Now, I will admit, this Sunday's readings are a little bit easier to deal with. So this is year A out of the three-year cycle. It's A, B, and C. For year A, they use this... Um, the gospel, and I'm just using the gospel readings because I do not have you know all the time to like parse everything and whatever. Anyway, so I'm just talking about the gospel readings. Um, so for this year, we're reading from the Gospel of Luke, I believe, and this is where Jesus is saying that you know I'm going to be, um, I'm here and I'm separating the sheep from the goats, and then after, well, actually that's not what he says. Um, he says basically that when he. Um, when the end times come, whenever he's like sitting at his throne, he will be judging and, you know, separating the sheep from the goats. Um, that's one way that people interpret to say that, you know, kind of having an in-group and an out-group. Anyways, and then the other big quote that comes from this is basically, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me, which is in my interpretation. I'm talking about the fact that how you treat the poor, how you treat the disenfranchised, how you teach, how you treat basically anybody, you're treating Jesus in that way, regardless of, of what these people are that you're treating. So make sure to treat them well and, you know, basically don't be mean to them. Um, so that's this year's. And so we're talking about Christ the King, and that one, I guess, is a little bit more, um, I don't know, it's it's a little bit easier to deal with, I guess. Um, it still doesn't quite fit into the narrative of, you know, kind of prophetic ideas of Christ's coming and stuff like that into um, Advent, but it's a little bit easier. Now, what gives me the real big problem, though, is when we get to uh, year B, we're taking... You know, we're, we're just kind of strolling along. We're talking to Jesus. Jesus is preaching. Jesus is kind of going through his entire life and his ministry, teaching you, you know, basically, you know, be good to others and, you know, be good with your neighbors and be good with God, basically. And then all of a sudden, this last Sunday comes up and it says, we are in the passion. Jesus is about to die. And I'm just like, wait, what's going on? This is such a weird reading. And we're right before Advent. You know, we're thinking about Jesus in the manger, like, you know, little baby Jesus. But why is it all of a sudden we're talking about the passion and Pilate is questioning Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? 
you know, and we already know where that story is going. It's going to be really ugly. It's one of the really, um, you know, the toughest, um, toughest imagery to kind of deal with as well. It's just really, um, it, it's just stark and harsh to kind of deal with that um, right before Advent. And then year C um, does it even worse. Um, Jesus is on the cross, dying, basically, um, on this Christ the King Sunday. And, you know, you have the two uh, men that are crucified at his left and right. And this is where we get the really famous, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Um, so again, the idea that Jesus is going to go into his kingdom and he is going to reign there. So I understand the, the, the idea about Christ the King and these readings pertaining to that. But at the same time, they could be done more smoothly. And on top of that, I don't like the fact that we still have to do a World War One kind of cycle in 2020. That's my main point, basically. It's like, we're trying to, you know, kind of establish traditions. We're trying to observe different things. But we have this one, you know, this sort of idea about uh, World War One. That's all, that's something that we keep on bringing up every year. And I'm just like... This it it just it, it doesn't really jive well with me. I guess that's my main thing, um, and then on top of that, they're better. This is weird to say it like this, and I don't want people to take this the wrong way, but I think that there are more appropriate ways to acknowledge those um, the harshness basically of war. If we really want to, you know, have a period of fasting or a time of remembrance, or something like that, to acknowledge those events. There are other days to do that. Um, the Day of Remembrance, for example. Um, the Church of England does it already. You know, all the churches except for, you know, all of the provinces of the Anglican Communion, for example, do it except for the United States and the Episcopal Church, or I guess the Episcopal Church abroad as well. Um, for some reason, we don't do that, but instead we, you know, we have this lovely Christ the King part, but, um, well, I guess the Church of England does it too. Um, I, I know this is probably a, a, a losing battle, but I guess the other thing is just that Christ the King is such, it's, it's a, it's such a, it's an antiquated image, in my opinion. Um, we're in an era now where uh, monarchies are being done away with, um, for the most part. I mean, like, I, don't, I think there's only like one monarchy that actually has some form of power. All of the other monarchies are just, they're just, you know, figureheads. The queen, you know, she... She just goes around being a queen. That's it. She doesn't actually, like, do anything. The same thing with, like, the, the emperor of Japan. He doesn't do anything. He just, he does all the ceremonial things, but he doesn't actually make the decisions about, you know, the development of the country. Um, the same can be said about a lot of monarchies that still exist, you know, for example, all over Europe. There are people that are basically just celebrities by virtue of them having been born into a family. And I can talk so much more about that, about the dynasties that we have here in the United States, for example. Um, so this is an antiquated idea. And then on top of that, we have a lot of the, um, theologians, we have a lot of thinkers, we have a lot of um, priests and um, lay people, just everybody is talking a lot more about really looking at Jesus from a different perspective. And for me, the most important perspective is more of the idea of Jesus as the good shepherd or as a great philosopher, as a great teacher, as a very accomplished teacher. You know, I love the fact that Jesus is a teacher and I, I can go so much more into this, but um, I need to leave it alone because this is getting really long. Anyways, basically, 
at this time, we are getting to a point where we are thinking of Jesus in a very different way. And yes, at the pulpit or at the front um, of the congregation or however you want to preach or however you receive your good news, um, you know, via Zoom now, especially or YouTube, um, you know, right now we can have, of course, priests or whoever, um, lay people, anybody who's going to preach, we can have preachers explain this whole imagery to us. But at the same time, we could actually just um, either remove this particular Sunday observation and go back to the original one, which was talking more about, um, you know, our expectation um, to wait on Jesus, to wait for the baby in the manger, to wait for the good news, rather than saying that, oh, Jesus is coming here to impose with his grand scepter upon all of humanity, to subjugate all of them before his feet. Um, you know, going into these sort of, um, these older, in my opinion, very antiquated sort of ideas. Instead, we can really think about Jesus as a baby in a manger. We can think about, um, you know, the refugee um, story that is, you know, taking, um, you know, Joseph and Mary taking Jesus from one city to another because of different kinds of issues with persecution. Um, we can think more about those imagery, um, images, and even more so. I mean, like, I want to think more about Jesus as the mother hen, for example. For me, Jesus means that. That's a much more important part of it. Um, so anyways, so we can continue to, you know, really grapple, I guess, with this, but I think we need to change it. I think we need to, you know, really, really think about the calendar in a way that can be a little bit more beneficial to all people can you know not just go like oh we're here again with our little monarchy and we're gonna keep it going and blah 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 and um yeah so anyways so that's um those are a lot of my ideas about um christ the king i always go on a tirade on it every year um this year just so happens to be the one where i do the podcast so um who knows maybe next year i'll do a podcast episode on this as well what i'm hoping to do is in the future i will do with a little bit more planning a little bit more forethought and actually put together probably like a um a series where I want to look at the lectionary calendar, the readings that we have for the coming up um, weeks and stuff like that. And I would love to be able to give at least my, you know, my sort of, um, it's weird, Spanish is the only one that's coming up, my consejos, my, my advice, basically. Um, I am not a theologian. I'm just a very active um, member in the church, and I've grown up with this church, and I care about it, and I you know, I have ideas and opinions, and I have ideas and opinions about everything. I mean, this is how I'm talking for so long. Um, anyways, so that's all to say. I hope to see that there will be a series on the lectionary, basically, um, as we move on with this podcast. All right, so now we're rounding out um, towards the end of this episode hopefully it wasn't too long hopefully it's not too rambly or whatever so my next question is what am i practicing and i think at the end of the day i'm a musician and i do practice something maybe it's not the things that i'm supposed to be practicing um but i am practicing something almost every day um it's the way that i keep myself sane at the very least i do like to play music um for my own entertainment and um kind of what i tell a lot of people is that I'm both a professional and an amateur musician. And what I mean by that is, yes, I do continue practicing um, basically 
to the highest that I can, regardless of what instrument it is. But, you know, I continue on with, you know, the instrument that I've been playing for 15 years. Um, I, you know, I played the bassoon for that long. I practice and, you know, I practice that for auditions, for colleges, for performances, for basically a professional career as a bassoon player. Um, I also practice it so I can get better to be able to teach my students as well. Um, you know, I believe that I should always be a good example to them um, by what I'm actually doing as well. So there's that. But then also, you know, I'll practice, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not that great of a piano player, for example. Um, but almost every day I'll play something at the piano. Um, I've been learning some Kupran pieces and they take a lot longer to learn than I'd feel comfortable with admitting, but I enjoy them a lot. That's why I'm actually learning them because they're pieces that I really like to listen to and I'm glad that I can kind of kind of play them sort of. They get better and worse every day. Um, but anyways, so that's actually one, one, one set of pieces, I guess, that I am practicing. So other things that I'm practicing... Um, of course, this being the episode where I wanted to explain more about Der Getreue Musikmeister, um, the, faithful music, the Faithful Music Master um, publication. Basically, I actually am practicing a fair bit from there. Um, first of all, I, I'm, you, I did practice this, um, what eventually gets classified as the Recorder Sonata TWV41 F2. Um, and that's a capital F. I think there's a big difference between capital and lowercase, whatever. Um, so anyway, so that recorder sonata is from um, Der Getreue Musikmeister. Um, it comes um, in one of the publications. And it's a piece that I really like to play, actually. It's, it's fairly simple on the recorder, and also it's very accessible on the bassoon as well. So that's the piece that I used for the theme music for this. And I might feature a little bit more of it later on. Um, as well. But anyway, so that's one thing that I'm practicing or I have practiced. The next thing that I'm also practicing is the bassoon sonata in F minor, um, which if you're a bassoon player or if you're a woodwind person and you've been around bassoon players before, this is a pretty common piece. It's one of the most standard pieces for pretty much all bassoonists to learn. Um, this one is TWV 41 colon F1 and it's lowercase f this time. You see there's a difference, I guess. Um, I don't know if there's a capital F1 as well. Anyways, so this piece is one that I've played quite a few times throughout my life. Um, I've played it on different instruments as well. I've played it on modern bassoon, and then I played it on recorder, and then I played the bass part on the Baroque bassoon. And now we're coming around to the time when I'm learning how to play the solo part on the Baroque bassoon, which is what the instrument was, what, what it was composed for at the time. So it's... A little bit more difficult on the Baroque bassoon, but then there's also a few things that are easier on the Baroque bassoon as well. Like I can articulate faster on the Baroque bassoon because the reed helps make it better and stuff like that. Anyways, um, probably another week or so I'll, I, I might include a little snippet of what I've been practicing um, just into it so you can hear it as well. But yes, that is also from Der Getreue Musikmeister. So, um, and I feel like that piece is actually pretty well developed, and it is fairly challenging for bassoon in general to play it, so um, it's like an advanced amateur, I guess, um, was the idea. Or maybe it was far enough along to where if you were keeping up with all the periodicals, you would have learned how to play it by then. Um, but I don't know. Um, Telemann is dead, and I don't, I can't talk to him, and... I'm not the most familiar with all of his work because he was one of the most prolific composers. I believe he is in the Guinness Book of World Records as having the most compositions to his name. So 
anyways, so there's that. And he was kind of a... Um, he was really popular in his day. Um, most of the Baroque composers that we know of today um, were kind of second to Telemann in that day. Nowadays, it's kind of the opposite. Um, I don't know. This I read this one article where somebody was saying that um, kind of Telemann is kind of in all of our on all of our music stands in like for classical musicians um, like as kind of an easier music to learn. You know, he does have a lot of music that's a little bit more approachable. He does a lot of teaching music and stuff like that. He does a lot of stuff that's for amateurs. But he also writes some very challenging music as well. Um, let's not forget that. Um, but anyway, so, yeah. So I am practicing some music from this periodical collection. Um, and part of it is actually for college applications, which are really fun. And they have auditions and um, I have no idea how it's going to work out. It's like um, you have to send recorded auditions, which are my least favorite things to do. But now I'm recording a podcast, so maybe I'll get myself a little bit more comfortable with, with releasing recordings of myself into the grand world of the Internet. Of course, who knows? What if there's only one person listening to this anyways? And then, um, you know, it's a concert for one person, which is basically what happens when I'm playing this music by myself. Okay, let me stop rambling. So basically, yes, I'm practicing music from Derek Atoya, Musikmeister. Um, the theme music is from the Recorder Sonata in F. And then um, probably in the future, I'll feature some snippets from the Bassoon Sonata in F minor. Thank you so much for joining and listening to me. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Also, feel free to reach out to me via Instagram or Twitter. I'll keep links in the show description. And um, please check the description for um, any other links and notes and kind of stuff that I've talked about. And I hope to see you next time. Thank you very much. Have a nice day.